When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning, and welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly. We're broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in downtown Santa Monica, California, the heart of Silicon Beach. And thanks to the Miami Book Fair, we have a very fascinating guest and a very timely guest. His name is Michael A. Cohen, and he is the author of American Maelstrom, the 1968 election and the politics of division. Gee, we don't know anything about division these days. Um, so thank yeah. you for joining us, Michael. It's uh, My pleasure. It's quite a timely book. It's interesting. Um, 1968 has always fascinated me. Your, your title uh, makes sense, the American Maelstrom, because it, it clearly is focused on the 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 presidential race in 1968. But one thing that always just puzzled me about 1968 is it seemed like the whole world went nuts. You had, you know, you had Prague Spring, you had, you know, there were uh, protests in in France, you had um, the massacre that happened right before the Mexico City Olympics. Um, Sure. Obviously Vietnam, and I'm sure there's some other uh, hotspots I'm leaving out. It just seemed like the world went nuts. I think, you know, to some extent, it, it's kind of the this period when the baby boomer generation kind of you know, hits a certain point of, of pushing back against sort of the, the sort of post-war politics and, and post-war sort of you know, even conformity of the, of the 50s and 60s. And I think there is some common sort of flashpoint across, across the globe. You know, circumstances even more, you know, violent and more... Uh, um, uh, a crazy year, frankly. I mean, obviously, because I think the war in Vietnam, but just also the civil rights movement, the rising in crime rates and political violence on the campaign trail. I think all that together, you really had just a well, confluence of factors that made '68 such an unusual year in America, not just American politics, but just in general America. Now, what what made you want to study 1968? Now, you know, first of all, the first part. I mean, I think that it's just incredibly, from a historical perspective, an incredibly fascinating year. We had so many extraordinary events occurring in, in just one one calendar year. But, you know, to me, from a political standpoint, I, I think 68 is this inflection point when the the, the rhetoric of American of American politics really changes and really moves in a very different and more and more 
divisive direction. Um, I think you, you see the beginning of sort of the polarization that we've become very used to in American politics. I think you see more racial polarization, more cultural polarization, generational polarization. Um, but you also see the two parties begin to move more to their political extremes. I think you see Democrats moving more to the left, I think, foreign policy. Republicans, you know, even after the Goldwater four years earlier being the nominee of the party, embracing more of the conservative and anti-government rhetoric that he had been pushing, not, not quite as not quite as pushing, embracing it as, as harshly as, as Goldwater did, but sort of moving in that direction. So you see the two parties moving to the extremes, which I think really in, in, encourages sort of polarization that you see emerge out of that, out of that period, political polarization that emerged out of that period. So those who are unfamiliar with 1968, which is very, very hard and um, hard to be, I think, in American um, American civic life, given that you had the assassination of Martin Luther King in April, followed by the assassination of Bobby Kennedy in June. Um, I guess the, the the nutshell, or you know, monarch notes, if they still exist, version of the election would be um, Johnson drops decides not to run because of Vietnam. Um, primary fight with Eugene McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy leads to um, all-out war at the Chicago Convention, and Nixon um, gets by um, Romney and Rockefeller, and Wallace runs as a third-party candidate, and Nixon wins. Is that kind of it? That's I mean, the gist of it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, it's funny that you you didn't you didn't mention Hubert Humphrey, the person you beat, which is sort of tells a lot about about Humphrey and his. He's almost an afterthought in the campaign, even though he was a Democratic nominee and vice president and came within, you know, very, very close margin of being elected president that year. Yeah, they had the very unhappy warrior, I guess. And, and very unhappy warrior. Yeah. yeah, it is telling you you say that because, I mean, when I, when I do think of 1968, um, I don't think of Humphrey, oddly enough. Right. You know, obviously, you know, but, but personal background, I, you know, I grew up in Rhode Island, where uh, in a Catholic family, where the, the Holy Trinity was, you know, Jesus, Jack, and Bobby, and and so um, it's, it, it's a different. You know, I come from a different perspective than others, but um, so maybe that is that's why I had that bias. But um, so what, what I found interesting in, in some of I. I some of what you've said and written in the book is um, your firm belief that one Rockefeller would have won had he won the nomination. If Rockefeller been the nominee, yes, yeah, yes. and that that in, in essence, um, in terms of what is the the most one of the most decisive events of that prim- of that election, it is. The Rockefeller's failure, because in your view, that um, that was the last stand of the the moderate to liberal wing of the Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, Nixon obviously won, you know, he won by half a million votes, but it was a very narrow margin. And Nixon was undermined by the fact that he was Dick Nixon and that people didn't trust him and that Democrats couldn't stand him. If Nelson Rockefeller is a nominee, I think he wins handily. Um, and I, but Rockefeller's problem was that he couldn't get past his own party, you know. And I think this, this, you know, his story is a very small story in '68 because he doesn't enter, he only doesn't enter the primaries. Um, he runs basically this strategy of, of barnstorming the country and trying to, to to manipulate the polls so that when delegates come to the convention in, in Miami Beach, Republican convention, they'll see that he's a better choice. 
the problem was that you know conservatives just didn't trust him. They didn't trust him because he'd come out against Goldwater in '64. They didn't trust him because he was activist governor of New York. Um, you know, he was he was I put in the book he was a doer, and then Republicans didn't like doers. Um, and I think you know it's sort of a sad story because he was he was really I think would have been a very good president would have been somebody I think would have appealed to both Democrats and Republicans, uh, moderate Republicans. Um, but, you know, he, he, he was an unlucky politician in the sense that he kind of came to the political fore at a time when the party was moving more and more to the right and demanding more ideological sort of dogmatism from their, from their public and from their nominees. And now Nixon was not a conservative um, in the same, anywhere near the same mold as, as Goldwater or Ronald Reagan, who also ran in 68. But he was somebody who understood how to at least pacify the conservative wing of the party. He understood how to pacify the southern wing of the party. And, and you know, with his, and often with his rhetoric, with the anti-government rhetoric, very hawkish talk on Vietnam. And after he became president, the way that he pacified the right was by ramping up that kind of rhetoric. And mm-hmm. so I think what you see coming out of 68 is not just, not really a, a policy shift, because the conservative revolution, to that there is one and it's very limited, happens much later. But there's a political revolution in that the conservative sort of anti-government rhetoric becomes much more um, resonant, much more effective as a, as a political tool. as one that Nixon uses to great effect as president for his reelection in 72 and Republicans, you know, continue to use for, for years afterwards. And I think that rhetoric that, that not just that the government, but almost a delegitimizes liberalism, delegitimizes Democrats. Um, becomes sort of the dominant narrative on the right. And it's, it's one that I think has really led us to where we are today when the parties are so polarized and so divided um, and, and really view each other in, in almost illegitimate terms. Uh, I think with Republicans who consistently view Democrats and Democratic presidents as somehow not legitimate. And the other, so Nixon, as you said, he really wasn't a, a true conservative. And actually, you, you often hear today that Richard Nixon would be considered a liberal by today's standards. Um, but he had, you know, everything is timing, and he had the, the timing of having Rockefeller and Romney on his left. Right. And Reagan on his right. That helped, too. And, and so... Um, so you have Rockefeller running... Uh, an, an inept campaign. Basically, he he said he wasn't going to run. Then he runs, and it's too little, too right. late. Um, then you have Romney, and and I'm trying to find the quote, but it was something like the Romney campaign is like watching someone make love to a football or something like that. <laughs> watching a doctor make love to a football. Yes. Um, please explain. So George Romney, you know, he was uh, governor of Michigan. Very moderate guy, very liberal on social issues in particular, um, on civil rights, um, a guy who worked across the aisle with Democrats, um, but also pretty conservative on fiscal matters. I mean, he was a, a pretty sort of classic moderate Republican. He was also a very appealing figure. He won four elections in Michigan as governor. Um, and when the, uh, the campaign begins, basically in 67, the, the jockeying for the nomination begins, Romney is seen as a frontrunner. But what people soon discover is that he's really not a good politician, um, and he consistently puts his foot in his mouth, consistently you know, gets himself in trouble trying to talk about Vietnam. Of course, there's a famous story about being brainwashed on Vietnam, which really does sink his candidacy. But, but to me, the, the bigger problem that Romney had was that he was just too moderate and in a party that was, that was increasingly conservative. And, and I think the civil rights point is actually a critical one because 
One of the things that happens out of 64 is that Goldwater does particularly well in the South. He wins five Southern states, primarily because of his opposition to civil rights. And, you know, what this, I think, shows, and, and but, but, but first of all, this increases the, the influence of Southern Republicans in the party, but also shows that there's an effective strategy in being not anti-civil rights, but certainly being skeptical on civil rights. And Romney is not that guy. Romney is very pro-civil rights. And one of the things that Nixon does very effectively is he kind of plays both sides of the fence. He, you know, he sort of mouths his support for civil rights. He even he supports uh, an anti-housing discrimination law that passes in, in the spring of 68. But, you know, he also sort of signals to Southern Republicans that when he gets to office, he, he's not going to move so hard on, on trying to uh, fight discrimination in the South. And, and that is the way that he appeals to Southern Republicans. And that is the key way that he gets the nomination, because once he wins that chunk of, of delegates, it's almost impossible for any any other Republican to, to to win the nomination. And Romney and Rockefeller, I think, never understood that. Both of them believe that Republicans should continue to try to win African-American votes. Both of them wanted to, to sort of maintain that legacy of the party of Lincoln, party that that, that, that was pro-civil rights. And I think one of the, the really the tragedies of 68 is that you see the Republican Party decide for political reasons, and, and actually for correct political reasons, they have more to gain by losing black votes. Um, and that's going to help them among white voters. And that's exactly what ended up happening, and we're still seeing today. And it's interesting because, you know, for listeners in living in today's world, well, it would actually have a find it hard to believe that there was a time when the Republican Party was um, the choice of African Americans, largely from sure. you know, historically from the Civil War uh, up until. Um, up until um, the point at which, um, I guess, Mr. King threw his support for Kennedy in 1960. Well, in 1960, Nixon won 30-plus percent of the black vote. In 56, Eisenhower wins 42, I think, 44 percent. Um, it's the real, you know, the, the King coming after Kennedy certainly, I think, has an impact on the margins in 1960. But in 64, you see uh, Johnson get 90-plus percent of the black vote, and then Humphrey do the same in 68. And that is largely a product of the Civil Rights Act passing in 64 um, and, and the fact that Goldwater opposed the Civil Rights Act. Very hard for black Americans to vote for Goldwater when he opposes civil rights legislation. Um, and within four years, I think the, the residual effect of, Dem- of, of Democrats being seen as a party of civil rights means that they get the lion's share of black votes. Um, the problem is that the country is overwhelmingly white and increasingly what ends up happening is Democrats are seen as a party that is that is a party of, of uh, black voters uh, that represents black interests. And that becomes, you know, something that uh, hurts Democrats, unfortunately, and, and helps Republicans. And so we have this divide that is so, so pressing, so, so clear today of the Republican Party basically being seen as, as um, the white party in this country. And Democratic Party being a multicultural party. And that is, I think, a shift, again, that you see emerge more more directly out of 68 and has become such a defining and and really, you know, pernicious characteristic of American politics. Now, what, one thing that when when I first when I first heard your theory that that, that was when that was when the the I guess the moderate to liberal wing of the Republican Party died Um Maybe maybe I'm thinking of this of something that's really more of a last stand. But what about George Herbert Walker Bush in 1980? I mean, he wins Iowa, and up until that disastrous, I pay for this microphone debate. He's he has a double digit lead in in, in New Hampshire, 
at least according to his own polls. And, you know, and then other candidates doing well in the early stages, Johnny Anderson, you know, by no means, um, you know, a hardline conservative. In fact, the reason why he was running for president um, was because he was probably going to lose his, his reelection bid um, in an increasingly conservative uh, district. So, do, do you... well, I would. I mean, I would say about that 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 H. W. Bush is more of a moderate, but he still um, he still talks like a conservative often on the campaign trail in 1980. Um, you know, he still sort of mouths a lot of the anti-government platitudes that you hear from Republicans. And so one, one example I'd, I'd give is in 68, Rockefeller basically talks about putting more money into inner cities and, and rebuilding American cities. Um, right. And, you know, this is something that you would never hear out of a Republican, serious Republican candidate, you know, for president in 1980, and I didn't hear from H.W. Bush. But beyond that, I, I, you know, I think Reagan's success, first of all, he almost beat Ford in 76. He almost beat the incumbent president in 76 in the primary. Right. You know, Bush really doesn't, I mean, Bush does win, win uh, in Iowa, but really doesn't have a great opportunity, I think, to, to win the, the nomination um, just because of the level of support that Reagan has. And, and of course, you know, Bush ends up joining Reagan and, and in many ways runs as a conservative when he runs president in 88, runs on a lot of the same sort of dog whistle, you know, frankly, right. racist tropes that had become that certainly Reagan ran on 1980. And so even someone like H.W., you see a kind of transformation, even in his son, you know, George W. Bush, I mean, is really in many ways the most conservative president we ever had in this country. Um, and I, today he, he couldn't even get a nomination in the Republican Party. He would be laughed out of the right. out of the crowd if he, if he tried to run for, for the nomination in 2016. So I think that you've seen this very, it's not the moderates went away, their influence just declined and they were forced much more to basically talk like conservatives. And, and so that, because of that, you, when you have a party that only has a right and a right or wing, Right, um, right. You know that basically creates um, a huge chasm when it meets its opposition in Washington. But that's part of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you have the, the Republican Party is just is a, which will seem odd thing to say in this kind of this election is a largely homogenous party when it comes to policy. You know, I mean, we talk about. I know Trump is the anti-establishment candidate, and Trump is you know at war with the GOP establishment. But when it comes on policy issues, there's not a lot of um, uh, difference between what Trump is saying and Republicans are saying. He just says it in a harsher and uh, angrier, more divisive way. But I mean, every single Republican candidate's phobia against immigrants. Trump just took it a step further. Um, right. But I think what's what's the the really big problem for Republicans is that it makes it impossible for them to reform themselves. I mean, I think everyone agrees, including most Republicans, that the Republican Party is currently maintained as a party that's basically an nativist party. Um, that's that is not just nativist, but hostile toward Hispanics and hostile toward toward blacks and, and hostile toward women, you know, cannot not win presidential elections. And yet after 2012, people realize this. And what's happened? They pick the candidate who's more misogynist, more racist, more xenophobic. Um, and because there's really no moderating influence, um, there's no moderate 68 or, or before that. So this makes it, I think, very hard for the party to reform itself. And I think when they when Trump loses election, and I expect he will lose, then this will be three straight elections. Republicans will have lost three straight. That's, that's usually when a party loses three straight, they they move back to the middle. 
But I don't see any reason to think that's going to happen with the Republican Party. Um, I think they're they're in very dire straits because of how you know homo- uh, ideologically homogenous they've become. Well, it's it's interesting you mention that because in the very point that you did raise, the, the kind of um, you know they become the neo know nothings. And um, boy, there's a there's <laughs> a right. co- there's a cocktail party uh, banter for you. Um, and um, <laughs> I'll try to use that twice today. See if I can. Yeah, please. But, yeah, that's uh, a good one. Sure, absolutely. But um, I might do it myself. The you know that basically it's the it's Pat Buchananism run amok, and the the advice that the party got after losing in two thousand eight was to abandon that and to recognize that you know the the basically demographic realities that you are playing to uh, for an increasingly smaller field right i mean this is the thing about it like when when republicans decide after 68 to basically run and and only seek out support of white voters that's a very successful strategy for them because the country is overwhelmingly white and so you know, 90% of the maybe is, is white, and so you can basically afford to run a strategy like that. In 1992, 87% of the was white. Uh, today, it's going to be about 70%. That's a huge drop um, in, the, in the, it's a huge, well, it's a huge increase in the non-white portion of the electorate. And, you know, the, the bottom line is if there's 30% of voters are not white, and, and 80% of those voters are voting for Democrats, you can't win national elections. You just can't. Um, you know, the thing people, Trump or no Trump, as long as Democrats win that huge percentage of, of, of the non-white vote, they're going to win every presidential election. Um, you know, there's just, there just aren't enough white voters out there, uh, who support Republicans, Republicans to win. And so, you know, this is a, and, and here's the, here's the thing about this. This was a problem eight years ago, was a problem four years ago, and that Republicans have made the problem so much worse by dominating Trump. And, you know, you run the very real risk of alienating non-white voters for a a generation. And that certainly happened with black voters. Um, And it may be happening with Hispanic voters. And it's going to be very, very hard for Republicans to get back Hispanic votes and Hispanic voters to support them after so many of them were willing to endorse Trump, who was running on a very clearly nativist and xenophobic platform, particularly against um, Hispanic immigrants. So I think, you know, this is a, this is not a problem that easily solves itself. Um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking more with Michael Cohen, author of American Maelstrom. Um, after these messages, you're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report only on Cranberry.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjorge, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjorgeDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E Digital.com. 
Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. Check out some new favorite podcasts now at cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back. And, you know, Michael, you you were talking about really the um, kind of the Russian roulette that the Republican Party has been playing as the demographic, um, I guess, play, playing board or field has changed so dramatically um, than when they first adopted this strategy in, in 1968. And if you want an example of what can happen, I, you know, there's a very real example here. In, um, we're in California where Republicans were, dom- were dominant at the state level. I mean, they held the governorship for, you know, several consecutive terms. And, um, you know, with, from Duke Mason and um, Wilson and um, both two terms um, governors that, and now they're, they're hardly competitive at all at the state level after basically after Wilson in his attempt, you know, Governor Wilson in his attempt to become a national Republican leader decided to go on on the English only. Yeah, I mean, I think, that, look, this this is, you know, what's happened in California for the Republican Party there. It should be a, a it could be a harbinger of things to come for um for the Republican Party nationally, because you're exactly right. I mean, this the Prop 187 issue, I think, destroyed the Republican Party in California because it made it impossible for them to win over Spanish votes. Um, and once that happened, you know, I, the party has. I mean, look, you have a, a senator's race, senatorial race this year, in which in which you have two Democrats running. Right. Um, you know, Republicans aren't even aren't even an, an issue in 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 state politics in California. And you know, I think. You hear people say, "Well, voters are more conservative uh, culturally," you know. But I think that, uh, especially what we see what happened with black voters, when when a, a, a demographic group kind of concludes that the a political party doesn't have their interest in, at all in mind and is is hostile toward them, you know, you're not going to see uh, those voters all of a sudden just turn around over, over policy. I mean, I think identity politics plays a much, will play a much bigger role, and so I I, I see it. Look, last time Mitt Romney got about 27%, I think, of the standing vote. I, I imagine that Trump will do far worse than that this year. Um, it's just hard to imagine a Republican politician who can win the nomination uh, and not uh, adopt a platform that is alienating toward Hispanics. And, and that may be the long-term trajectory of the, of the party. And like I said, I mean, look, if you look at the, the warning signs for Republicans, you, you're losing – you're losing Hispanic voters. You're losing black voters. You're losing Asian voters. You're losing basically pretty much most non-white voters are voting 70, 30, 80, 20 for Democrats. But you're also doing poorly among millennials. 
you know, positions on same-sex marriage and, and a host of cultural issues are alienating to, to young people who, to, who, who are among the most liberal uh, voters in the country, millennial voters. So you look at the long-term trends for Republicans, and it is ugly because they are in a situation in which they are relying on a base of, of basically non-college-educated white voters. And, and by the way, one more thing that's happening this year, and this is the, maybe the most important demographic story of this campaign, is that uh, college-educated women. So you're seeing Hillary Clinton leading among college-educated women. Uh, that demographic voted for Romney in 2012. If they lose college-educated women as well, uh, you, you are seeing a, a very, very serious decline for Republicans nationally. It's going to be hard to sustain any kind of political growth for them if, they, if they're losing that demographic group as well. And that, that, is a huge, that is a huge shift. You are seeing this election. Now, one thing that, again, you, I'm reminded of a story. Uh, I was driving home late at night once with a friend, and he, he, he had a little too much. And um, we got a flat tire, and we were in a very bad neighborhood. And his instructions were, don't stop, don't worry, go over this bridge, it'll go away. And I, I knew very well that, that, <laughs> that there, there, there was no real way that could be true. But the, this, the, the pain of having to get out in a very bad neighborhood during a snowstorm and change his tire just seemed to be what didn't, it made it worth, let's give it a shot type of thing. Sure. And, and so Republicans are seeing this changing scenario and it, you know, Ronald Reagan is the, the god of, you know, modern Republicanism. And, in 2012, Mitt Romney matched his matched or maybe even exceeded his percentage of the white vote, and still got creamed. Yeah, I mean Romney wins right by 20 points, 59-39, and yeah. still loses by five million votes. Right. I mean, the, the, you, you have a flat, <laughs> and, and, and so. <laughs> it, at some point, you know, it, they have to go through that pain. But I guess either they're, they're not willing to, or and it, they're not able to. But they're not able to because <laughs> I think again they understand this is what they need to do to change. But but the party itself, the the, the rank and file of the party. Look, let's say you have next time in twenty twenty sixteen people run and fifteen of them say we have to change, right? We have to stop scapegoating Hispanics. There's going to be one candidate who's going to say no. I'm going to run like Trump did, and that person's going to win. Because ultimately, that's what appeals to Republican voters. I, I guess that that's the, that's the odd thing for Democrats because we're all looking. I'm looking in, thinking the party will save itself at someone at someone some point. Someone's going to step up. You know, Kasich is going to save the day in, the, in Ohio, or you know, enough Republicans will say something before the convention that we we really won't go down this path. But yeah, I, I, well, I guess you're right. I, I I don't see any way for them to avoid it because I don't see any way for them. Look, ultimately, half the party voted for Trump. Half the party voted for, for a guy who was not a part of the establishment, who was running on a, a racist native platform. And ultimately, um, you know, that's where the the uh, the direction of the party is, is headed towards toward Trump. And um, ultimately, you know, I don't see how anybody who can come in and sort of reverse that direction. I think that you, you know, the only way I see any possible way Republicans might, might change is if they lose the House in, in, on November 8th. 
Because if that happens, then they're basically shut out, and then they have almost no choice but to figure out some other way. Because you know, you, I think, all, again, I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, pretend, what happens when parties lose free trade presidential election, they tend to moderate themselves. They tend to move more to the middle, and that's happened throughout American history, and that's what should happen theoretically. You know, if um, it, when Trump loses, in, you know, in two weeks, but uh, that isn't going to happen because there's no there's no moderating force. It may, it may be that Republicans have to be destroyed, have to literally lose the House, lose the Senate, before they realize the need to change the, their, 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 their behavior and, and you know, not be so alienating to non-whites. But again, it's hard to – it's a sort of a prisoner's dilemma because even if 9% of the party agrees that's what they need to do, the 10% who won't, and they'll spend that 10% – Right, they'll ride it. Yeah, they'll ride it high. They'll undermine the whole thing. The 10% yeah. and – Exactly. Um, so let's be an, an equal opportunity abuser. Um, the Democratic Party didn't didn't exactly do well in 1968 either. I mean, no. obviously the Republican Party, Party did quite well. They won, but you know, it, obviously it sowed the seed for the, the current situation. But the Democratic Party went from one of the most sweeping landslides in history to um, losing the White House by a hair. Right. And sixty one percent in in two thousand in nineteen sixty four to forty three percent in nineteen sixty eight. So a huge drop off. And and so in in the battle, the division in nineteen sixty eight within the party isn't civil rights. Although to an extent, you do have. Some member, some southern members are are unhappy with you know some of the liberal wing of the party, and you do have this breakaway with George Wallace, but it's the division in the party seems to be the the war. Look, there are lots of divisions in the Democratic Party. I mean, the southern wing and the northern wing are pretty strongly divided over um, over race, and there's no question about that. But ultimately, what I think destroys Democrats in '68 is Vietnam. Um, because uh, it creates it, it, Vietnam fuels the insurgency against Lyndon Johnson. I mean, it, it's what leads McCarthy to challenge him. Um, the, the Tet Offensive in January of '68 is what causes voters to really lose any confidence in Johnson. It's the reason McCarthy does well in the Hampshire primary. It's the reason and that's the reason Kennedy gets in the race a couple of days later. And then it's the reason that Johnson drops out. So Vietnam is what divides the party. But, but also I think what Vietnam really does is it makes it hard for Democrats to reform themselves. It makes it hard for Democrats to address you know, the growing concerns over civil rights, the growing concerns over crime. There were, uh, you know, crime was in many ways the number one issue in the country in 68, and it was an issue on which, uh, which Nixon was, uh, hit Democrats the hardest on with crime. And, and, and there was significant increase in crime, and it wasn't just, it wasn't just a racist you know, dog whistle for Nixon. Crime had gone up dramatically. People were legitimately concerned about it, and Democrats were were basically unable to come up with a really effective argument or message for Americans about it because they were distracted in Vietnam. And so, uh, Vietnam, in a sense, is 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 a catalyst, but there it's a catalyst in a way because it, it distracts the party from the things they need to be focusing on. And, but here's one irony of this: I will just point out there that. You know, the Democrats almost won in 68. Humphrey came within, uh, you know, he lost by half a million votes in the popular vote, but right. but a few thousand votes different in, in states, and he would have, that the race would have gone into the House. He wouldn't have been a nominee, but he probably would have pushed Humphrey to moderate views on Vietnam earlier, which would have caused him to win. And if he wins, you know, the Democratic Party, in a sense, 
is hobbled, but it, it survives. Um, it survives because Republicans will have lost free trade elections. They'll be forced to moderate their, themselves. You know, Humphrey will have an opportunity to end the war and to deal with crime issues and civil rights issues. And I think, in a sense, you know, it, it, the great tragedy of 68 for Democrats is that there was so many ways it could have turned out differently. And at, at, at various points throughout, going back to 67, Johnson had opportunities to to de-escalate the war in Vietnam, to move toward a peace platform, to reduce the American presence. And he didn't do it. He didn't do it in the fall of 67. He did it finally in March of 68, but it was too late. He then didn't really allow Humphrey to separate himself from Johnson on the war, which made it harder for, for Humphrey to win over the anti-war wing of the party. If all those things are done, one of those things are done differently. Um, it's not hard to imagine a scenario in which Democrats win the White House in 68. And, and then, you know, it, you're looking at a very different party, a very different country, frankly, if that were to have happened. Although I've, I've talked to Jeff Greenfield and you know, his theory, and granted, he, you know, obviously he's a partisan since he was a speechwriter for Bobby. But his theory is that Daley would have handed Bobby the convention at Chicago. Yeah, I, I, I totally disagree with that view. And I think I spoke at great length, but there were so many groups in the party that, that didn't like Kennedy. The unions didn't like Kennedy. Um, the Southern delegates didn't like Kennedy. You know, Kennedy, his, his overall support in the party had declined pretty dramatically from when he got in the race. By, by late May of 68, he's running third in, in national polls against Humphrey and McCarthy. Um, and I think Johnson would have, you know, cut off his arm if, it, if that's what it meant to, that's what it took to stop Kennedy the nomination. <laughs> I so I, I don't that. buy that argument. Uh, and I think that, you know, Daley's influence is one thing, but ultimately Lyndon Johnson would never have allowed Kennedy to replace him in the Democratic Party, never in a million years. It's, that That is a very real um, factor. And uh, although, <laughs> Absolutely. I, although I, I do feel I should push back some more since I've uh, uh, argued vociferously on Cora that Bobby would have won. <laughs> but um, <sighs> and uh, what's interesting about um Greenfield is that he says Bobby would have been a one-term president. You know, I don't know about that. It's a, I think Bobby Kennedy is, look, I read this in my book, the book and, and you can see, I, I have a very sort of nuanced take of Kennedy. I think he's a little overrated as a, as the way he's been, the way he's been venerated, but I think he was an absolutely fascinating individual and somebody who was complex in a way few politicians are. And I think he would have made for a really excellent president. Um, I think he would have a hard time winning the, the presidency because a lot of people didn't like Bobby Kennedy. I think it's one thing that, you know, I think because he was a sad, the tragic way in which he died, I think a lot of people right. sort of tended to, to forget about his many hard, hard edges. But, you know, he was, he was a person that alienated people and, and he upset people and people saw him as being ruthless and see people saw him as being, um, you know, a difficult, difficult per, a man and people who knew him found him that way. And I always found it striking about, and this is why I disagree with, this, with, with, with Jeff's argument, even I, I think he's, he makes a reasonable case, but why I disagree is primarily because there were so many groups within his own party who, just, who didn't, not only didn't like Bobby Kennedy, who loathed Bobby Kennedy, right? The unions particularly, who were such a crucial uh, uh, force in the Democratic Party in 68, they hated Kennedy. The, the UAW was okay with him, but the AFL-CIO didn't like him, and all the teamsters really hated him because the whole Jimmy Hoffa thing when he right. investigated him in the 50s. He was not a popular figure, and, and I think people underestimate and I don't think appreciate enough how much Kennedy alienated white suburban voters who saw him as a, uh, as a candidate of black uh, Americans. Now, that, that's racism, and I'm not, I mean, there's no other way to sugarcoat it. That's a lot of what's driving that. 
but it's a reality of the politics as they were in 68. And, you know, one thing that happens with Bobby is that he wins in Indiana, mainly because he wins a huge percentage of the black vote. And then he loses in Oregon. Why? Because Oregon is basically a 90, 95% white state. Right. And uh, he wins in California and, and, and because of the Mexican vote, the Mexican-American vote, and because of the black vote. And so among white Americans, among white voters, you know, he tended to do, not do as well. Um, and, and I think people tend to forget that about Bobby Kennedy. You're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report only on Cranberry.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Synergize your search engine education from 101 to Rockstar level only on Cranberry Radio. Cranberry.fm. The best gavel to gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. The following is an and encore segment of Cyber Law and Business Report. Um, there's a city councilman here in Los Angeles, um, Bill Rosenthal, who just died. And he was working for Bobby in Oregon. And he saw him off to the plane. And the last thing Bobby said to him was, are we going to win here tonight? And he says, I don't think so, Senator. And he he always thought, if only I could have told him that we would, he might have come back. And history would have been different. To Oregon. Yes, to Oregon. And which is hard to believe since, you know, the, obviously the, the big media show in L.A. Um, but uh, it's just it's something that's always troubled him. And uh, he just wondered what, what would have happened. Now, you, you touched on a very important point And it the, what, the role of race in separating the Democrats from the white middle class. And um, this morning I was walking my dog and I was r- reminded of a uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the folk singer Phil Phil Ox or Oaks, however it's pronounced. Phil, Phil Oaks, and, yeah, yeah, and he has this song "Love Me, I'm a Liberal," and it right. says says a line that says, "I love Puerto Ricans and Negroes as long as they don't move next door." And <laughs> it, it, it was that really was that was that driving part of of the Democrats' disaffection. Look, there is a there is a 
I love Phil Oaks, and that's a great song. And there's, but there's a phenomenon, and he's, and he's putting his finger on a phenomenon that definitely existed, which is that many Americans supported civil rights legislation. They supported, especially Northern whites, right. they supported it because they saw that what was happening in Jim Crow South, and they, and, and they were outraged by it. They didn't mean that white Northerners wanted to live in communities that were, um, that were where there were other African, they're African Americans. They didn't want to send their kids to schools that are predominantly African American. Um, they didn't want to face more competition in their workplace from African Americans. And I always found this striking that thing in, in from the '60s, '64 on to, to the '68. You see again greater support for civil rights legislation, greater support for support for voting rights uh, act, and for voting, uh, giving basically any black to, to be able to vote without impediment. But on housing there is a consistent lack of support for ending housing discrimination and for integrating white neighborhoods because many white voters and not wrongly that believe that if more blacks moved in their neighborhood, it meant that it would decrease their property values. And, right. um, and they were right. A trash, unfortunately. And that again, it's, it's racism. There's no other way to, way to sugarcoat it. It is, but that's how they viewed it. And so you would ask people, for example, would you support having a black family in your neighborhood? And many whites would say, yes, that's fine. Of course. But then they then ask, how about a quarter moving in, and then it's about half and half. What if it was predominantly African-American or, or close to predominantly African-American? And then the numbers dropped to like 20%. So I think there was limits to how far whites were willing to support uh, integration measures. And I think one of the things that happens in the 60s that, that really undermines Democrats is that a lot of white voters start to be, begin to see the civil rights movement that's, that's it's hurting them directly, hurting their economic interests, making right. them less safe. And that certainly drives a lot of people into support George Wallace in 68, and it drives a lot of people support Richard Nixon in 68. And I think this, this kind of racial polarization and this fear of, of black advancement and black integration ends up being, I think, the defining really political construct of the 60s, 70s, 80s. I mean, it, re- it really is incredibly dominant and, 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 and pernicious in uh, forced American politics. Oh, where definitely, white, yeah. Uh, don't want to. Don't want to. Don't want to. Only want to integrate so far. Not integrate in a way that hurts them. And what's interesting, and what everyone forgets about the 1964 landslide, was that California voted on a housing discrimination proposition Absolutely. in 1964, and it was a pro-discrimination proposition, exactly. and it passed. I mean, ultimately, yes, it was found to be a, unconstitutional. But in that in that same milieu of when you have a, a huge Johnson landslide, you also have the state of California saying, "Hey, we we think we kind of the, the Phil Locks theme, you know, we don't we don't want them living next door." This is a great great point, and it's a moment that is often forgotten. But it was the uh, I believe it was the Rumford Act that. Uh, which was passed in California and then it was repealed in 64 in that election. And you're right. You have an election in which Johnson wins the landslide. People overwhelmingly support him. Uh, he, he's the guy, the man who pushed the Civil Rights Act in 64, obviously. And yet, closer to home, they say, no, we don't want that kind of integration. And so you, what you often had, by the way, in a lot of places in the U.S., places like Detroit and places like Philadelphia, is you, you had people voting Dem- Democratic Party line, voting Democratic president, Democratic senator, but on the local level, voting for Democratic mayors who were you know, not terribly um, uh, the most uh, open-minded figures and tolerant figures in the world. People like Daly in Chicago, like Kobo in Detroit, uh, James Tate in Philadelphia, people who were 
who basically kind of maintains the racial segregation that exists in a lot of northern cities. And so what happens is that when, when the National Party begins moving more aggressively in civil rights, all of a sudden Democrats, people who vote Democrats, see uh, this is a threat to them. And they see the same party they had supported for, de- for decades that helped them, that it provides social security and all kinds of, you know, labor protections and, you know, subsidized um, you know, mortgages and so forth. All of a sudden they're not so thrilled with them because they see them as acting against their economic interests. And so, so that uh, is really, you know, one of the big divides that you see. And, and, and it plays out not just in the South, but in the North as well. No it question does. about it. And but so you see two tracks. Obviously, there's the the Democrats are are the party beholden to the African Americans, and then but also in in the fallout and how the the war fell, the war divided the party and the rise of the McGovern wing. You also have this this kind of theme that Democrats can't be trusted on national security. Yes, and, and that is a huge problem for them. Yeah, absolutely. Which one? Um, which one had had a. Um, a bigger impact, or which one has a, a more residual impact today? That's a great question, and it's kind of hard to answer. I mean, I, I would argue that the foreign policy one is a it becomes a big, big problem for Democrats for a long time. And you know, throughout the rest of the Cold War, if you look at up until about ninety two when the Cold War ends, first election post Cold War, you do see that in every single one of those races. Republicans really hammer Democrats on on national security issues and generally succeed in in, in doing so. You see this in '72 going after McGovern. You right. see this in '80 uh, going after Carter because of obviously because of Iran. You see this in '84 with the with the, the famous Jean Kirkpatrick speech where she talks about blame, Democrats call them blame America firsters. Right. Um, you see this in '88 uh, with the pockets, and, and then you see it again in 2004. With the uh, with the the attacks on on John Kerry and the playing on the national security issue uh, post nine eleven, um, so I, I do think it's a huge factor. I think it's one that also really affected Democratic politics in a negative way for a very long time. I mean, I would argue one of the reasons that we're still in Afghanistan today is because of this, because Barack Obama, running president in two thousand eight, felt that he needed to, you know, because he was opposed to the Iraq War, sound tough against terrorism and not, you know hard with this this, notion, this 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 idea of weakness and effectlessness on foreign policy. So it talks about, you know, increasing troop strength in Afghanistan and, and, and you know, eight years later finds that it's very hard to get the U.S. out of Afghanistan. So I think I think this still plays a role and it plays a very negative role. It's been a, it's been a negative role, you know, going back to the 50s and the Who Lost China debate. But I do think that it is it is something that is it continues to really affect our politics in a negative way. I mean, the racial stuff, there's no other way around it. That is a big problem. But what was a problem for Democrats, but today in 2016, it's a big win for Democrats. That's right. the big thing that's, that's changed: is that being a multicultural party, being uh, a a demographically diverse party, has been hugely beneficial. I mean, think about this for a second. I mean, this is crazy to think about. Four years ago, Barack Obama, uh, four and a half years ago, was opposed to same-sex marriage until he changed his mind in, in May, May or June of, of right. 2012. Now, you literally can't find a democratic politician who doesn't support same-sex marriage. I don't even know if there is one. I mean, maybe a local level. You probably find a one, local, yeah. Congressional level, Senate, presidential, not a chance. That's a huge shift. That's yes. a huge shift, which I think shows you a little bit about the, the larger demographic changes that have occurred in American society in the last, you know, four years. But, you know, there were, we're leapfrogging over a significant event in the, in the Clinton years with, um, I think Clinton really 
took steps to try to, I guess, move, make Democrats more palatable to white voters by one taking out that sister soldier, and, and and I think welfare reform in Clinton's view was really about race. It was about um, it was about welfare was always code for race, as was crime, Absolutely. and that's why you have those two being major initiatives of the Clinton administration: crime and welfare. No question about it. I mean, I think, I think on the welfare issue, the the, the notion was that this issue had been was destroying Democrats, and it was a huge, a huge, you know, attack line for public. Uh, I think that's what drove that. I think crime as well. But you know, I, I would compare. I mean, it's sort of fascinating the crime bill in '94 compared that, which, by the way, I think is demonized a little bit unfairly by by some some liberals. But but you today we're talking about not. Crime. We talk about criminal justice reform. We talk about Black Lives right. Matter, and we talk about making the system, you know, better and more fair for for Black Americans. That is a <laughs> a seismic shift in American politics that we even have. I mean, the fact that Hillary Clinton talks about systematic racism, uh, I people don't that understand. Is a huge like, that's shift. Yeah. huge. Yes, and that is not is- something the Democrats would have done twenty years ago, ten years, eight years ago. And the crime bill that Clinton came about, you have to understand, this is also in the in the era when crack was first being introduced. Right. And I know in like some cities, particularly where I was living at the time, Washington, um, where yeah. you didn't have distribution already set because, through organized crime, there was there was open warfare going on in the cities Absolutely. Over, over crack. And, and so, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the crime in the 90s was out of control. There's yeah. no question about it. And that gets that gets lost in that debate. Absolutely, it does, and I, that's why I think some of the criticisms are unfair. Even if I, I, I think talking about over incarceration and talking about you know um, minimum, minimum mandatory minimums that had incredibly damaging effects, especially in the black community, no, no question about it. But I think it was it was it was race racially motivated. But it was also a response to what were very frightening increases in crime. Don't forget, nineteen ninety in New York City, there were a thousand homicides. Wow. 2000 homicides, I believe, if I remember correctly. So, you know, it's it's a it's a huge, you know, was a huge problem. Then. It's not a huge problem now. And you don't see Democrats demagoguing on crime at all. Right. They don't. They talk much more about Black Lives Matter and criminal justice reform than they talk about, um, you know, getting tough on crime. And that is, a, that is a big, big change. And it's one that, you know, again, it's one that's driven by demographics, but also one that Republicans have handed to Democrats because Demo- Republicans have run so far to the right they've made it easier for Democrats to basically sound more like liberals, frankly, and not pay a huge political price for it because, you know, they could pay a price, but look at the alternative, right? So you know, yeah. Democrats can afford to count that they, 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 they recognize that they can, they need to mobilize their supporters and that's how you do it. And they don't have to worry so much about, about winning over, uh, you know, Trump supporters or winning Republicans because there aren't, there really aren't that many of them, enough of them out there to cause Democrats to lose elections. So it's, I, I, it's a fascinating change. I have to worry about winning over my producer, however, who was telling me we need to take a short break. Um, we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on Webmaster. Excuse me, only on Cyber Law. Let's try that again. Um, take two. Um, you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on Cranberry.fm. Be, uh, I'm just, just making we're finishing up. We're, we're finishing up in a we're few minutes. Yeah. Rascal, what time do we finish? If you can just type in the time. Yeah, we're just going to wrap up. So, um, I was just going to just see, see, plug your appearance and anything else you wanted to plug, like your contact info. Uh, you could just mention the column at the Boston Globe and, and 
and the book. That'd be great. Do you want to talk about the other book too? The speech? In- no, nah, that's okay. Just okay. this one's fine. All right. Um, and we're back and we're talking with Michael Cohen. Um, he is the author of American Maelstrom, the 1968 election and the politics of division. And um, he will be speaking at the Miami Book Fair. Do you have a date yet? I believe it's November 20th. I will be there um, um, speaking with uh, the other authors. So you will uh, obviously with everything you said today. We'll see how how insightful you 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 truly are as it's aired. <laughs> but I, I do think the election outcome seems to be a, a near certainty as as at least at the presidential level. But one never knows. Um, if people want more information about you and your work, where should they go? Uh, well, you know, I think probably follow me on Twitter. My my handle is speechboy seventy one. Um, and I'm a pretty prolific Twitter. And then I'm also, you can read me in the Boston Globe. I'm a columnist of the Boston Globe. I'm right there a couple times a week. But you live in New York? I do live in New York, but I, I do write the Boston Globe. I know it's a little strange, but it's, uh, <laughs> that's the way it works. So and, really and, and, I guess, something like that. And Speech Boy, that's because you, you started your career as a speechwriter? I started as a speechwriter many, many years ago. Uh, and I, I have a name that when I was looking for an email address was rather was taken. <laughs> so I, my roommate, imagine that Michael Cohen, I'm like, okay, I know. Right. Hard to believe. Right. It's, it's like John Smith for, for Jews. But basically I, uh, I, uh, my roommates used to jokingly call me speech boy, because I was a speech writer. And so I thought, okay, well that's a funny handle for an email address. Uh, and that became my email address and that became, you know, that's become my sort of nom de guerre, if you will, for for twenty something years. And and so I guess we only have like a, a two minutes left. In the time we have left, and, and how do you think people will look at two thousand sixteen, and and how will that compare to how we're looking back at nineteen sixty eight now? I, I think you know we look at sixty eight, and it's not. Uh, sixty eight is sort of a realignment in American politics. Right, it really is a shift in. The direction of the two parties, and it really is a shift. Two people in, get killed. I think. <laughs> yeah, you have that. I'm sorry. And then two people get killed. I mean, you know, that is. And, and two major yeah. historical <laughs> figures are, are assassinated, right? Yeah. So it, it's an extraordinarily important year, and it's one that is like transformative. I don't think 2016 will be seen the same way. I, I don't. I don't think this. I think it's. I think the extent to which it's just transformative, it's in, perhaps you know really being incredibly damaging to the Republican Party. But I do think that that was already cooked in before 2016 and that there was really hard, it was hard Republicans to avoid, you know, having huge, uh, a crisis moment out of this election. I think it's been exacerbated, no question about it by Trump. And I don't know. I, I think we'll look back in this election and we'll say, we may end up saying, you know, this was the last the swan, sort of swan song of the GOP, although who knows, you know, I mean, a lot of things can happen. Um, but I think for Democrats, you know, this has been an election in which you can certainly say, that the party is more cohesive and more unified, even after the primary fight between Sanders and Clinton. They're more unified and cohesive than they probably have ever been, uh, certainly in recent American history. And that is, uh, that is, I think, when all is said and done, I think may end up being the big story to come out of this election, is that you have two parties moving in very different directions. And I think, you know, in 68, both parties moving in, in similar directions in the sense that both are moving more to their political extremes, the left and to the right. I think what's happening now is different. I think you're seeing one party coalesce around a, a very liberal, you know, political platform. And I think the other party 
you know, really find it, find it very difficult or even almost impossible to craft a message that appeals to more than just their supporters. And, and that's going to be a long-term problem for them. And last question. In 68, you had a huge surge by um, Humphrey at the very end from October, you know, from 10 yes. points down to, you know, to almost pulling it off. Was, was that mainly due to his breaking with Johnson for the war or was it just revulsion at seeing Nixon on laughing? I think it was, uh, it was one, it was coming out against the war. That was the huge thing. No question about it. That definitely brought a lot of liberals back into the fold. But I think more so it was Wallace's support falling away. Don't forget, George Wallace was, was basically was just nipping it at Humphrey's heels up until late September. And then, um, he has this disastrous press conference where he introduces his VP pick, Curtis LeMay, who talks about the efficacy of nuclear weapons. And then you have the unions come out in, in huge numbers, basically working against Wallace across the North, North, East, and Midwest. And that combination of those factors really ends up, um, you know, driving down Wallace's support and bringing up support for Humphrey. And I think, you know, that, that and also Nixon ran a very kind of safe, almost too safe campaign. Um, right. And someone had to, but that hurt him as well. Yeah, but but of all this whole this whole process that I described happens a month earlier. Possibly wins the election. There's no question about it. That's my view, at least. I mean, I shouldn't say no question about it. It's a counterfactual, but that's my view. And so, you know, uh, another week or two, and I don't think might have pulled it off. My my campaign management class, the professor said, um, always remember election day. He said for two reasons. One. Um, you, you always hear talk about if the election had happened this day, someone would have won. One and the other being sometimes candidates forget when the filing date is. But um, that's all we have now. Um, I really want to thank you for joining us. Um, it's been a great pleasure, um, Michael Cohen, author of American Maelstrom. Catch him at and um, thank you again, Michael. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you, my pleasure. Really enjoyed it. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.